Direct your attention this morning, my friends, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, the first 15 verses. If you're using a copy of the Bible under the seat in front of you, you will find this on page 802. We've been working our way through a, a short series, eight weeks long, on gossiping the gospel. Those that have been given the grace and forgiveness, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose sins have been forgiven. We've been given the gift of life, eternal, abundant, and free. Now we are called then to take that gospel into the world, to use that gospel to encourage our fellow brothers and sisters, and to call on others to repent and believe. We've been looking at the positive aspects of gossiping the gospel, how we are commanded to do this, how we have an absolute certain guarantee in the salvation of all of God's elect, how we're always to be willing and prepared and able to speak of the hope that we have. But today I want to look at the negative side. What happens if, we're, if we don't? What happens if we become idle? If that gospel that has transformed us or that gospel that we say has transformed us, we are not living out among one another or seeking to spread, to gossip that gospel to others, what is it then, friends, that we can be certain of? The Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration through the, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, gives us the answer to that question right here in Romans chapter 10. You would do well now to give your full attention to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe no, uh, of the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands. Oh, Father in heaven, 
What a joy it is to know that in the opening of your holy, infallible, and inerrant word, that accompanying that is the powerful spirit, the one who dwells within each of us who have done this very thing, who have confessed with our mouths and believed in our hearts that you are our Lord and Savior. You have given us the gift of life, eternal, abundant, and free. There is no call for destruction in our life, but growth day in and day out, our own growth in grace, and the growth in the number of those daily that you are adding to the elect, those that you have called from the foundation of the world who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, but you use us to speak of the hope that we have to gossip this gospel, to do that powerful work in their hearts and in their minds. So, Father, open our eyes now then to behold the beauty of this gospel of grace and seal that righteousness that's ours in Christ alone to us today. Please, we pray that we might gossip it and live it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. About three years ago, Jennifer and I bought an empty lot after my last child moved off. Kids were out of college, off on their own, living together in Chicago at that time. We decided to downsize a little bit, get rid of that second floor. Our knees were getting too bad to go up those steps. Plus, there wasn't anything up there that we wanted anyway. We all wanted it on, uh, on one floor. So we decided to purchase this lot to sell our home and to hire a builder and build a new house. We moved into that house in July. This July will be a couple of years ago. But I don't think my builder knew exactly what he was getting when he had me as his client. Uh, I, I may be a little uh, OCD, although I, I call it CDO because I like them all in alphabetical order. <laughs> I, I decided every day that I would leave the church, I would drive over to the house and I would inspect the work that they were doing. And many times I would turn... I would turn the corner and there would, be no, there would be no workers at the house at all. And I would go into this house and I would look at all of the stuff that they had done wrong. I had a copy of the blueprints. I, bl I built a few buildings in my days and so I, I knew what it was supposed to be. But I soon became the guy who was correcting the wrong, who was having to tell the builder he wasn't following the plan. The plan said that he was supposed to do this, but he wasn't anywhere to be found. He wasn't, he wasn't on site often. Uh, and, and just the, the subcontractors were there, and then I would have to come in at the end of the day and rip stuff up and, and write notes and things like that, send emails, and I had to redo all kinds of things. If I had followed his plan, uh, the plan that wasn't the plan, I would have had a window in my pantry. He framed it for a window in my pantry instead of in my formal dining room. I had to redo that. I had to redo, ask him to redo the, the fireplace. They put the wrong rock on the fireplace. It was disgusting looking. I had to have him replace all of the landscaping because I told him I didn't want hollies. I wanted Indian hawthorns and he put in hollies. And I had to replace all of the hardware in the bathrooms because the faucets were nickel, but then he put in this dark bronze color. And I said, what are you, you're supposed to match the, the, the hardware. Well, I always put this dark color in. I said, but this is in your house. <laughs> this is my house. And the plan calls for this. So, so we'll go back to the plan. He had to redo the ceilings in the, in the living room because they were all, all like this and with lines all over the place. He had to redo the walkway because you walked out of my front yard and you walked through the grass to get to the car that you park in the front. He had to redo the HVAC system because in his, in his 
thinking, I guess, he decided you walk in the front door and look straight up and there would be a return vent right in the ceiling at the top of my entryway. It was, it was a nightmare, a nightmare. And for 12 months, 12 months, every day I'm going over there saying, you're, you're not following the plan. The plan says this and you're doing that. And then he, he admitted something to me. I don't think he meant to, but it made such perfect sense. You know, you bought a lot, and there were only a couple of lots left in your subdivision. We're really done in this subdivision. We've got a brand new subdivision going in just north of town, and we're in that infrastructure stage, and I really need to be up there watching, you know, all of the infrastructure with sewers and uh, water lines and electric lines and all of that, so I, I really need to be up there. And what I heard him say was, I don't really care about you. <laughs> and your little house in this one last little subdivision, I got better things to do up here than to follow your plan down here. The Apostle Paul gives us that same picture in Romans chapter 10. We so, friends, listen, let's be honest with ourselves. God knows the thoughts in our minds before we even form words on our tongue. God knows that we delight in our plan. We delight in our way, things our way. We delight in our own self-righteousness. Even those of us here who claim Christ as the, the Lord and Savior of our life, reformed thinkers who know that God has called the elect savingly to himself before the foundation of the world, we still act like many times, live like many times, that we are, that we are righteous by our own doing, self-righteousness, that we claim the righteousness of Christ, but the way we live is this performance treadmill that I have got to make God love me more by doing more, doing better, and then certainly he will welcome me into heaven because why wouldn't he? I'm a great person. But what does Paul say to that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. If you've closed your Bible, open it again. Friends, we're moving through this passage. Romans chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer, that thing that burns deep within me is this that the Israelites may be saved. They have a zeal for the Lord, and they are not saved. Does that not just blow your mind? They have a zeal for the Lord. They know the things of the Lord. They know the law. They know all kinds of stuff, all kinds of facts, but they are not saved. Why? Because they have claimed a righteousness that is their own. Instead of claiming the righteousness of Christ. Now friends, listen. Putting this all in, in context, because our typical fashion is we move line by line, book by book. Romans chapter 9, the chapter right before this one that's our text this morning, is the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture that clearly defines the doctrine known as the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. That before the twins were born, before they had done anything good or bad, before they did anything at all, God said, so that my election might stand, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Can the piece of clay say to the potter, make me into a plate, not a pitcher? No, the clump of clay is at the mercy of the potter to make it what he has ordained that it would be. This beautiful passage in Romans chapter, 11, or chapter 9 
of the doctrine of predestination, of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of grace, a doctrine that we cling to as Reformed individuals. Then we get to Romans chapter 10, because what Paul is trying to say is, listen, just because you are born a certain way doesn't mean that you're in. Just because you were born an Israelite, just because you were born a Jew, doesn't mean that you were part of the new Israel. And now in chapter 10, he gives us something else. He says, you're not a, you're not a puppet on a string whereby God just does something and you have no part in that. And nobody will stand at the door of heaven and say, please, Lord, let me in. And the Lord will look at his Bible or his book and say, uh-oh, uh, you're, you're not elect. You're not of the elect. No. God has called those, is calling those to himself that he has ordained from the foundation of the world. And then in chapter 10, there is a response from individuals that have been chosen from the foundation of the world. And that is that we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those individuals, these individuals that have a zeal for the Lord and are not saved are relying on their own righteousness. They are not being they are not being overlooked because they are, they are not elect. They're, they're not being passed over because they're not in the Lamb's book of life. They are, they are rejecting the Savior. They are rejecting Jesus Christ for themselves, their own way. They want their plan instead of following His plan. And not only are they coming to a destruction of themselves, a zeal for the Lord and not saved, but for those that are around them. All of the Gentiles that are around them are not Jews, and so they, they don't give a flip about any of the Gentiles because the Gentiles aren't Jews. And so there is a destruction in those that are around them as well. So here is Paul's point. Idleness leads to destruction. It leads to our own our own destruction in our own life, if we are clinging to our self-righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ, I don't care how zealous you are. You have got a zeal for the Lord, but you are not saved. But when we cling to the righteousness of Christ and we get off that performance treadmill and we start living by grace, living in the fullness of grace upon grace from the mercy the mercy that's extended to us from our loving Heavenly Father through the finished work of His only begotten Son and now applied to us by the powerful work of His Holy Spirit, then living in that righteousness, we stand in the presence of God completely accepted, not because of my own sinful righteousness, but because my sin has been taken and Christ's righteousness has been given to me. Does that make sense, friends? It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Why don't we live that way then? Why are we constantly living in our own righteousness, self-righteousness, instead of the righteousness that God gives to us in His Son? When we do that, we are living idly, and we are leading, living lives of destruction instead of lives that embrace the fullness of what it is that we have been given. Look at how Paul starts. He identifies these individuals' unbelief and sin. I can testify about them. They have a zealousness for God, but they are not saved. And then look at verse 3, what he says. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, there's what? There's ignorance. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God. Ignorance. They sought to establish their own righteousness. 
arrogance. Now they think they can do it on their own. And they did not submit to God's righteousness, disobedience. So in their ignorance, they became arrogant, and they disobeyed what God had told them to do. And that was to live in the fullness of the righteousness of Christ, instead of living in their own righteousness. So what does Paul say about that? He says, stop it. Stop it, friends. Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. He is the end of the law. There is a righteousness that is yours, and that is yours by Christ alone, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then he goes on to go all the way back to Moses. You are a people who are zealous for the things of the Lord. You've got it up here. You know your law. You know your law. Well, let's look at the law, Paul says. Moses describes it in this way. That describes the righteousness that's by yourself, by your own keeping of the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But friends, Moses did not believe that. We know that to be true. We go on to see that in this particular passage. But even reading the life of Moses, we know that that he didn't think that the Israelites would do the very things that they said they would do. Didn't they do that? Well, I'm going to go up on the mountain, Moses said, and I'm going to talk to Yahweh, and you people stay down here. Oh, we're going to do everything. We're going to do everything that the Lord has commanded us to do. And while he's up on the mountain, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're melting down their gold, and they're making a calf, and they're bowing down to some false god. They cannot earn their own righteousness by their own works. But that's what the law says, is it not? The man who does these things will live by them. Think about this. Remember that rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? The law says this. Okay, do that. Keep the law and you will live. <laughs> and what does he say in his ignorance, arrogance, and disobedience? Well, I've done that. Check. I've been there. Done that. I, I, I've, done, I've kept all of the law. And Jesus looks at him and says, Oh, really? You want to go there? Okay, let's go there. There's, a, there's something called the top ten, the, t the Ten Commandments. And the first one is, You shall have no other gods before me, and you are a rich man. Here's what you do. Go sell everything you have and give it all away. Give it all away to all of the poor, and then you will receive eternal life. And he goes away despondent, downcast, and despair because he had so much wealth and he didn't want to give it away. And what is Jesus saying? No other gods, money is your God. You haven't even kept the first one of the ten and you think that you have kept them all. So the passage, the man who does these things will live by them. If you kept the whole law, the promise of God is that you would receive eternal life. But you will never keep the whole law. I will never keep the whole law because we are corrupt in every part of our being. We love our way. Friends, even knowing that, this isn't foreign to us, right? I hope not. I mean, every Sunday I stand in this pulpit and tell you it's all about grace. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. We all would affirm that. We all would, would affirm that with our lips, with our minds. And yet the way we live our life all too often, we are trusting in self. We are relying on self and our own righteousness. Oh, I'm so tired of that. I'm so tired of the, the performance treadmill that I've got to do. The, I've, oh, I've got to make God love me more. I've got to do this better so that mankind will think I'm better. Aren't you tired? Aren't you weary? 
Aren't you weary of trying to earn favor with God? Friends, listen, please. He already loves you 100%. You cannot improve that. You can't improve 100%. He loved you enough to die for you, to give you this gift, this gift of life, eternal, abundant, and free in His righteousness. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Moses describes it this way. That's what he says in verse 5. But then look at verse 8. But what does it really say? Moses described it like that. But what does it really say? And in between, he quotes five Old Testament passages, all of which were in our liturgy this morning, from the law passage and the, affirma- or the assurance passage, the gospel passage. It's, it's from Isaiah. It's from Joel. It's from Deuteronomy that Moses wrote. What does, what does Moses say? But now what does it really say? Moses didn't even believe that we could keep the law and earn God's favor That's what Paul is saying. Don't think that you can do such good works that you can ascend up to heaven because that's to bring Jesus down. And don't play the martyr with me, Moses is saying, thinking, oh, i got to get lower and lower and lower. That's to bring Christ up. Just wrap your arms around the righteousness that's yours in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He makes this progressive argument by using the word for. In verse 5, my translation doesn't have it, for Moses describes this way. Then in verse 10, for, if, if, uh, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Verse 11, for as the scripture says. And then verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's using this word, this progressive argument to say you will never keep the law by yourself. But one has already come who kept it for you. And that one is Jesus Christ alone. And if you will receive his righteousness, look at verse 12, then you will be richly blessed. Blessings beyond your imagination. Blessings beyond our cognitive ascension. Blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Richly blessed forever and forever. Friends, listen please. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks that's known in theological discussions today as the Lordship Controversy. We want to have Jesus as our Savior because we all will really agree that we cannot save ourselves. So we'll take Him for our Savior, but doggone it, don't take Him as Lord. I am in control of my own life today, not Him. And we cannot have that. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's both and. He is Savior and Lord. It's both. He saves us from ourselves and our sin, and he reigns over all things now, including our lives with this rich blessing that is the righteousness that he gives to us, his own righteousness, the gospel. That's what we have. Believe. Isn't that what Paul says? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is is an an understanding, a cognitive understanding, but with, with, uh, with 
a personal truth as well. It is a, it's a personal application of the scripture. Paul, Paul uses the word heart four times in this passage. In, in verse 6, don't say in your heart this. And then he says in verse 8, in your heart the word of faith is, is close to you. And then verse 9, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Verse 10, it's with your heart that you believe. So it's not just this. It's not just a, a cognitive mental ascent. There is a God. There is a Savior. But it's that 18-inch trip from here to here from our heads to our hearts. And when he captures our hearts and gives us the ability to see and to believe, it's trust. It's trust now with personal application. I call on him by confessing with my mouth. That's what he says in verse 9. Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Call out to him. It's not just simply this, friends. Something that we know in our heads but now it is a calling out, a crying out to the one that I cannot save myself. I rely on my own righteousness over and over, and yet you came and you died for me. I confess my sin. My heart has been moved and warmed by this gospel of grace. I believe in you as my Savior and my Lord. Sinclair Ferguson said it like this, Open your mouth and he will fill it. Open your heart and he will flood it. That's the promise. That's the promise of the gospel. And if we don't cling to that, friends, we are idle, and we are leading, we're on the road that leads to destruction if we are trying to live by our own righteousness instead of the righteousness that is freely offered to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. Look at verse 12. Paul says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Lord is the same Lord of all. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. The Jew was saved the same way that the Gentile was saved. And that was trust calling out to Jesus Christ and his righteousness, clinging to the righteousness of Christ. These individuals while zealous for the things of the Lord, were still ignorant, arrogant, and disobedient, holding on to their own, their own actions, their own works, their own abilities. And Paul comes along to say, that idleness will lead you to destruction, but it will lead to the destruction of the nations around you as well. Because all, Jew and Gentile alike, come to saving faith only one way. Now we said this two weeks ago when we said there is only one way to heaven and that way is Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which mankind can be saved. Well that really is a bold statement. That's a little narrow, not tolerant. I'm not making that statement, my friend. Jesus Christ himself made that statement. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
That is a bold statement, but we make that bold statement because Jesus made that bold statement, and it is true. It's absolute true that coming through Christ, you die to yourself. You die to this performance treadmill of thinking that you can make God love you more. He already loves you 100%. Oh, once we, once we grab that... <laughs> Once we grab that, friends, the first catechism question, what is your chief end? To glorify God and what? To enjoy Him forever. I enjoy the Lord more when I'm resting in grace instead of resting in myself. When I realize that He is giving me more and more and more of Himself. And now, having received all that, what does Paul say? Now you're not on the road to destruction. And now all of these other individuals around you that are on the road to destruction, I will use you to give them that good news, to gossip that good news. Look at verse 14 to the end of our passage this morning. Now what are you going to do in response, Paul says? You ignorant, arrogant, disobedient people. <laughs> Cheer up. You're worse off than you think you are. But God is greater than we could ever imagine. And he gives us this universal call for Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one will be knocking on the door to heaven saying, please let me in. And God said, I'm sorry, I didn't elect you from the foundation of the world. They never come to that place unless the wooing, the working of the Holy Spirit draws them to himself. And even with us right here, that's what he said, is it not? The word is near. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And even that still small voice, the power of the Spirit, that we will expound upon next week, because next week is Pentecost Sunday, the day that the church received the blessing of the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that now there is a power at work within us, through us, to give this gospel to the lost and the dying world. And he calls, us to that, calls that attention to us even now in verse 14. How are all of these other Gentiles that are outside your walls, how are they going to call on the one that they haven't believed in? And how are they going to believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear unless you preach to them? And how are you going to preach unless you are sent? There is a destruction going on around us. And the Apostle Paul now says, looking at your own life, the, the word is near. He's speaking it to you. He's sealing it to you. You understand it. You believe it to the point you believe in your heart. You're confessing with your mouth. Now do something. What are you going to do? Are you going to let the nations around you just die a destructing life? Are you going to be idle and hold on to this gospel yourself? Or are you going to go gossip that gospel, preach that gospel? There's application for someone like me in this passage, in verse 14, verse 15, 14, 15. How are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? Friends, this is a clear description of what preaching ought to be. Preaching is not storytelling. It's not gimmicks, swallowing goldfish. If you bring X number of people next week, I'll swallow three live goldfish and you can slap up a pie in my face or something like that. No. Gospel, the gospel is at stake here. What is preaching? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. 
Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And what? You will be saved. Not you might be. There's a chance that you're going to be. But that you will be saved. He gives us the order here, Paul does. The gospel comes from God himself. And that gospel from God comes through his word. And it comes to all who will call on him and believe in him. And all who now are empowered to live that gospel out by the Spirit. That's what he goes on to say in verse 16 and 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The message through the word of Christ, that powerful spirit within us, friends, listen, is this. He takes the word, the spirit does, and he speaks that. The word is near. It's in our ears. It's in our hearts. It's in our, we hear in a real way the Savior speaking to us every time we open the word. I don't need a hierarchical structure of church government to have an individual at the top to whom I go confess my sin when I have a Savior who died for my sin. I go straight to Him. He's near. That's what it says. And as we open His Word, we have this promise that God speaks through this Word and He seals it to us. Now listen. He speaks to us in various ways, my friends. That is absolutely certain. But I want to show you something in verse 14. The second sentence of verse 14. The translation that I'm reading, the NIV, has the word of, but it is not present in Greek. Let me read it to you as it's written, and then read it to you literally. It says, And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? But the word of is not there. How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard. He speaks. He speaks to his elect individuals. We are not puppets on a string, and we are not banging on the door to heaven trying to get in and hear him say, you're not of the elect. All of the elect will hear the voice of God. Now, I'm not saying an audible voice. Some say they have heard that. Can he do that? Absolutely. Can he call that guy in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa with some voice that I don't understand? Yes, he can. He's God. But you're not in the deepest, darkest part of Africa. You're in McKinney, Texas, the number one place in the city or the nation to live by all those signs that are on our, our light posts. So what is he doing? He's saying through the faithful preaching of the word, you ought to be befriending your neighbors and inviting them to this place, or if not this place, another place, where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Because there is power in the word. There is power in the word. The voice, how are they going to hear unless they hear the voice of God? And how do they hear the voice of God? Through the work of the Spirit, the word and Spirit together, accompanying one another, to cause 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to cause the scales to fall from our eyes, to see to see the one high and lifted up whose train fills this whole temple to the point that I say, I believe, I confess with my mouth, and I believe in my heart. That's faithful preaching. Preaching is calling on you to call on him. Don't leave this place, my friends, with just more head knowledge, but leave this place having called on the Savior who floods your soul with his righteousness. 
And then, my friends, you go into the world and preach the gospel. You go into your world, your neighborhood, your HOA, your cubicle, your school, your whatever. You go into that world and gossip this gospel because of the destruction of those around us who are dying and are going to go to hell. The Lord has dictated the end. He has called his elect to himself, but he also dictates the means to the end. And he is dictated by this passage right here that he uses people like you to go into this community and into your world with the gospel that you say that you believe and give that gospel away, gossip that gospel away, and what he says he will do is he will add to the number those that are being saved. He will effectually apply salvation to the ones that he has called from the foundation of the world. Now what happens if we don't? What happens if we don't? Well, all of these questions that Paul asks in verses 14 and 15 lead to this indication. It will be to the destruction of those around us. Now, yes, the elect is sure. The elect is sure. But God has chosen you to reach his elect. If God has ordained that Sally and Bill are going to come to saving faith through you and you and you and you and you, and you don't go do that, then what we expect is idleness leads to their destruction. Destruction, friends. A destruction because many times we... We, we fear, we fear that, well, I don't know what to say. I, I don't, I'm not going to know how to approach the, the person across the street or in the cubicle next to me. Listen to this quote by Robert Murray McShane. It's not many words spoken. It's words spoken in faith. It's not, it's not the way you say it. It's not the eloquence in which you can communicate the gospel. It is the, the gift of faith working through you in speaking, gossiping the hope that you have. You have a story, the story of how Jesus has brought you to the point where you say, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you are my Lord and my Savior. Just share that story. Just gospel, gossip that story to the point that they would receive, verse 12, the rich blessings of Christ having called on him. The 15-year-old was leaving for worship on a cold January morning. Snow was falling, and so it diverted his path to the church down a different way. And because the storm got so nasty, he, he darted into a Methodist primitive chapel. And there were only a handful of people there, and the circuit rider preacher didn't even show up that day because of the storm. And this old layman climbed the stairs to the pulpit, said he had a word from the Lord to bring to the people of God. And it's from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And then this old man just kept on. 
And he didn't have much to say, so he just kept repeating that verse. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Look up here, look down there, look unto me. He kept saying the same thing over and over again, until his eyes locked with this 15-year-old lad sitting at the bottom of the pulpit. And he pointed to him and he said, Son, you look miserable. Look unto him, and be ye saved. Immediately, the young lad would say that he was given the eyes of faith. Not that he saw anything or heard anything, but that his heart was stirred within him. His heart was stirred within him because of a gospel that he had never heard. To look unto the Savior and be saved. And he did. His heart was warmed by this gospel. He was converted. He confessed. He believed. Who is the lad? Charles Spurgeon, who became a mighty minister of God, who faithfully proclaimed now in his own life that that idleness was not going to lead to destruction, but that he would call on the name of the Lord and be saved, and that he would stand in a pulpit and faithfully proclaim that same gospel so that thousands would do the same call on the name of the Lord and be saved. There is a righteousness for everyone who believes and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look unto him and be saved. All the ends of the earth, there is only one God. There is none else. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to know that we are yours and that even today... New life is ours. New life is ours either to receive for the first time for those who have never called on you as their Savior and their Lord or, or the same salvation that is ours as you seal to us more of your grace, more of your righteousness, more of living in that joy of the gospel instead of this performance treadmill. Father, fill our minds Fill our minds with the sweetness of your gospel, please, we pray. Help us not to be idle. Help us not to be on a pathway to destruction. Help us not to have a zeal for you and yet not be saved. And then, Lord, doing that work in us, use us as your instruments to speak of the hope, to gossip this gospel that we might not see in our idleness the destruction of the neighbors around us, but that they might come savingly to Jesus Christ, calling on you for salvation as you give them this gift of life. Do that through the ministry of these saints here, all of your children everywhere, for the praise of your glorious grace we pray. Amen. Friends, let's respond with the singing of hymn number 451. Here in just a moment, Dr. Wong will be playing the hymn all the way through. It's a new tune to us. Uh, you, may, you may recognize it, a new hymn to us anyway, so she'll play it all the way through so that we can be familiar with it. 